what we grow here, the environment in which it is grown, does have an edge globally. There's no question about that. But let's talk about our own struggles with environmental despoilation, our own problems with pollution in water particularly, and talk about what we're doing to overcome our flaws and where pollution is an issue for us. And in showing that, we can show an honesty to the Chinese consumer. Kia ora, my name is Jade Gray, and welcome to the Asia Hustle podcast. This is the podcast that provides New Zealand businesses deep, up-to-the-minute insights into the complex Asian marketplaces through first-hand accounts from the business people and thought leaders in the midst of all the action. Greeting listeners, today we are joined uh, in a podcast with David Mann of Mann China Investment Management Services. Welcome, David. Thanks, Jade. For the few of you that don't know, David is one of New Zealand's most well-known and respected business leaders in China. Arrived into Beijing, I'm guessing 84, isn't it, David, 86? 84, actually, yes. Okay, that's um, quite a few moons ago, where he still resides in Beijing today. For decades, David has seen firsthand uh, the transformation of China's economy into the world's second largest. More recently, David has been on various boards in New Zealand, representing pretty much uh, the who's who of New Zealand uh, in China in various roles, uh, speaking on China across the world and and in New Zealand, and uh, writing commentary for key media publications, both in New Zealand and abroad. But more importantly for me, David is an old mate. He's really helped me over the years through various ups and downs of my entrepreneurial journey. And can also add that David is a very capable hiking companion from years of discovering Great Wall of China together. So David, really cool to have you on the show. Just really interested to get your take on where the New Zealand-China relationship is right now. Um, It really is a fascinating time. David, China came into this COVID crisis, in my opinion, with an economy that I hadn't seen as fragile for many years. Um, It was struggling a bit to stay on the front foot um, for most of 2019. Um, they're in the midst of the largest trade war of their modern history and uh, up against an increasingly forceful U.S. administration. And um, there was also talks just on, on the street. You know, there was an adage around Beijing that winter is coming. I don't think anybody foresaw the, the chill of this winter um, and the carnage that we've witnessed in the last four months. So really, from your viewpoint, uh, from your contacts, from your network, how's China fared? And um, more recently, uh, in regards to the government's economic recovery measures? Well, China's fared well. And I think um, what you detected when people said that winter was coming is probably as much to do that the boom of the boom times of China had subsided. And China was returned, was settling down into a normalcy, which I think for a lot of entrepreneurs um, and for a lot of business people was difficult to adjust to. But actually China was backing off what was a very risky growth rate and a level of, I would say, gambling with their own economy to something steadier and something better rooted. So the slower growth rate has actually been a good sign. The other thing which um, one needs to look at in terms of China's position in, in the cold, the, the trade war, I almost said cold war. I think we are actually moving to a kind of cold war, especially since um, American positions of the last few weeks. But China didn't suffer a great deal because of American tariffs. Um, in, in effect, China's economy was pretty strong last year. America's deficit last year um, in, it grew, I think, something like 26%. Um, and China's fell by about 12%. So its own position 
has been very, very strong. Um, and it's not affected by American um, trade tariffs on goods, manufactured goods and basic materials. However, where China has been vulnerable is in the tech sector. And that has been an issue. It hasn't bitten yet. But I think in the next year to two years, America will hurt China significantly around technology. But you know, one of the views of China is that it's a, an economy that depends on exports. And people look at last year and how China exported less to the world. Um, in many cases, they've even begun to look at the first quarter of this year and measure that China's recovery is not being really seen in exports. But if you take the net trade account, if you look at imports and exports, in the last five years, exports have contributed almost zero to GDP growth. It's an old view of China. It's now very much an economy driven by uh, services and consumption. It's beginning to more resemble the American economy and the balance of its growth. So China's vulnerability is not that it hasn't got markets to sell to, but there is a vulnerability, and that comes from the COVID crisis, which is the inputs that China depends on. It's not getting all the things it needs for its technology sector. Um, it doesn't, hasn't developed the microchip foundries yet to replace what it's been cut off from, from receiving from the states. So there are a lot of issues that China faces, and I think it's going to be a very difficult year for China. But to think that it was a, a weak position to begin with, I would say that that's not the case. Interesting. David, you've raised a really good point around the global supply chain. And obviously, China is a, an integral part of that. And I think uh, we've had a very abrupt awakening to just how intertwined our economies are, especially in regards to the various supply uh, channels that move around the world to get to an end product. Are we going to see a refinement of those supply chains, do you feel, globally in the coming years in result of this wake-up? Or are countries just going to take the whole supply chain internally and go from you know, 1 to 10 without relying on anybody? I think refinement is the right word. Um, this idea that we can decouple from China, US can decouple from China, is really quite absurd. Um, you know, China is a massive manufacturer. Um, all countries in some way depend upon China for a finished product or for um, components for their own products. The interesting thing too is that China consumes most of what it manufactures. 90% of China's manufacturing and industries are consumed by itself. So being part of the supply chain of China is also to be part of the distribution system within China. Because so many foreign companies that are in some way engaged are looking to sell to the domestic market, not so much to actually receive the goods back on their own. So the ongoing story for us, definitely for New Zealand, but I think for any developed Western country, is that China is the market for us in the present and the growth market for the future. So I think the disengagement that has been touted is more of a sort of journalistic riff rather than something based in real analysis of how manufacturing is structured. And I guess looking from a New Zealand point of view uh, and looking at that supply chain and you know, New Zealand's a huge ingredient supplier to China, um, especially for their food services sector and food and beverage really has shown to be the most resilient part of our economy uh, in the recent months and China uh, taking the lead in that relationship of, of trade. Do we see that this uh, increasing demand of our food and beverage, is this going to be a 
a kind of a short short term um, pop in, in revenue. Uh, on the back of a bit of panic buying and and uh, customers looking for healthier options, or do we see this as a start of a really long term trend that New Zealand can can capitalise on? I think there are some spikes. Um, if you look at infant formula, uh, it is quite common for a family to stock up on the infant formula that they're already feeding their child or about to for the child coming. Um, that's not unusual because children don't like to change infant formula, so. The main European brands, and A2, which is an Australasian, a joint Australasian brand, I think one could define that as that, um, have seen record sales. So that will come off slightly, but I think the trend, the upward trend, is going to continue, particularly in the things where the provenance of products matters, as they certainly do when it comes to protein, and whether that's the dairy industry or it's our meat industry. Um, certainly it matters when it comes to anything addressing health such as manuka honey. Um, the whole nutraceutical industry in New Zealand has the potential to grow substantially given its sales into China. China is already the world's largest market for supplements. Um, I, we have a Swiss client in that sector and also a German client. The Swiss client is enjoying record sales to China. They can't keep up. Um, I think the Australian market too has seen huge demand for nutraceutical products and also for solid vitamins, minerals, and very, very um, more standard uh, products that relate to personal health and particularly for boosting the immune system. But we still face the historical issue that weakens New Zealand and China. And that's that, that most of our comp companies don't have a presence there. They sell to China. But once the product reaches the border, even though they may import it themselves in some cases, the story of the product, the integrity of how the product is sold and presented is very much the domain of the distributors. So we need to have in many of our industries a much better presence in China. Um, maybe that's something that NZTE could look to be more part of because some companies of course are yet too small to afford the kind of presence they need to govern how their products are sold and how their stories are told. But I think that's the next step we need to take in terms of securing the pathways for even greater volumes um, of products than we now sell. Absolutely, David. And we've both been witness to uh, NZT's increased capability in market. It's been a real reflection on Peter Chris' leadership um, to get a very uh, commercial government body uh, in market. Where I feel now the focus could move is away from the top 20%, which has been, I think, the focus of NZ Inc. Uh, for the last decade, uh, and trying to take these companies from whether it's 20 million to 200 million. How do we now in these growing sectors of wellness, of uh, health foods, of nutraceuticals, take these companies from 2 million to 20 million? Um, and we know if you're a $2 million company, China's a very tough market. What could those relationships look like? Do we need more investment coming in to scale these guys at an earlier stage? Do we need to bring in overseas money, including Chinese money, to really take these guys into their distribution systems and invest in the companies? What could those models look like to scale these small companies up? I think the issue is incentives. The government has got a $50 billion budget or allocation for the recovery of New Zealand from the economic damage of COVID-19 and the other damage to come from other economies being damaged by COVID-19. 
First, I don't believe they will need to spend all of that by any means. And this fear of some heavy generational load of debt, I think, is could be unfounded. We've got an opportunity to put some of that money, a lot of that money, into some fund structure, which is managed by a combination of government and also private sector investment specialists. So we do actually pick tomorrow's winners, that the money is allocated on strong commercial grounds, not ideological grounds. We've got to be careful that we must, also, while we consider the importance of New Zealand's position as a clean green economy, we also have to be careful that when we consider any investment, one, it has to fulfill a sustainability function, that's critical, but it must be also a very viable commercial business. Also, we need to be, in, be very clear that any business that receives the incentives, given the country's current position, that there is an employment factor as well, that we are creating business that will employ more New Zealanders. So if money is applied outside of the state sector, but partly guided and governed by the state sector, we could have tremendous results. We've spent a lot of time as New Zealand, um, uh, as a country, attracting foreign investment and a lot of assets have been acquired by foreign companies over our history. That won't change profoundly. But as it comes to building new businesses, we can invest in and then we can also own these businesses as they become more successful. There'll be nothing wrong in a major wellness business, a major play for China, having some 40% government ownership for the rest of its um, five to eight year life, let's say, or first phase of its life. This is one way of, of directing taxpayers' money into something that's going to be a lot more creative for taxpayers. They can see the dividends flowing back. They can see people going into jobs and not relying on unemployment benefits. So this is a, a very, very good opportunity to, in a sense, re-engineer the New Zealand economy. And I think <clears throat> focusing on allying ourselves with winners, as our government has done, alongside the Fronteras and the Zespris, alongside the Les Mills um, health companies or gym companies. Th this sort of thing is fine to some extent politically, but I think 80% of what we do must be amongst the SMEs because they're 90% of our economy. No, absolutely, David. And we've talked in the past that, you know, how do we go from a SME economy to an ME economy? Um, and that really is, is where we get, you know, really move the dial. Something I've experienced myself, and you know, I've had my fair share of uh, you know, challenges in China, and, and you'd know as well as anybody, but I've always found the answer typically resided in finding the right Chinese partner. And that was whether it be a challenge or an opportunity. And I don't feel it's just about the size of the checkbook. I don't believe it's always about the experience of the, of the company behind it. I really do feel there is a, a huge need for these SMEs to be put in touch with the right locals on the ground. When I say right, I'm talking about trusted, proven partners who really want to champion New Zealand brands in market. And I don't feel that is something we've explored or invested in enough. Uh, I know there's great work done by CARE and NZT to introduce people, but to really mentor and give these local partners a, a stake in the outcome. What could that look like? How could we start to bring in that incredible entrepreneurial spirit of Chinese into some of these SMEs to really get them uh, skyrocketing in China? I think that that needs to be brokered by the private sector, the New Zealand private sector, because to identify the right Chinese partner, 
would take someone like yourself that has had to make those choices and um, take the consequences of those choices. So in effect, that would be the right business model. And I think you're right. Any company that is going to be qualified for a fund investment and perhaps loans as well would need to prove that they had the ability to identify or to know what was the right partner themselves, perhaps under some guidance. But their ability to function in China should be one of the qualifying, fact, qualifying factors for them to receive investment in the first place. And yeah, in a way, we want to drop the S out of SME and go with medium-sized enterprises that probably already have the means to do that investigation into China. Yes, they can get money from an organization like NZTE with their um, International Growth Fund. That could work for some of it. But it's very important that we find companies that have the hunger and the need, and to some extent, the preliminary means themselves. Otherwise, we'll be creating companies through investment. And unless companies have earned through their retained earnings the right to qualify for investment, they won't be China ready. So I think um, also find those that have been to China and failed and find out if they understand why they failed. Often they're the best candidates for the next stage, which is go back in, take on the risks again, and actually this time succeed. So there are many factors around it, but I think that they are practical issues of experience and discernment related to China, not just being a good business, as you've said, in New Zealand. We look at COVID and it's really highlighted a lot of the strength of New Zealand and things that we probably took a bit for granted or we knew they were part of the New Zealand Inc. story, but never really put at the, the forefront of our export story. One that's coming through strong and clear is the whole traceability and food security mechanisms and IP that New Zealand has and is absolutely world class. How do you see, David, we could take something like that, which we know the Chinese government is desperate to, to learn about. I know MPI is doing a lot of work with China on this, but how could the private sector really get behind the diplomatic efforts in the space to drive this forward at a rate of knots? In six months' time, we come out completely on top as the leader in the space around the world. I think um, there is a tremendous opportunity, and New Zealand does have a lot of um, good technology. It has got um, functioning world, as you say, world-class leading um, traceability capacity uh, in the produce industry. There is microdot-like um, barcodes that can be now put on fruit, which allows the buyer to verify the authenticity of what they're buying, but also to search the provenance of the fruit to the very orchard the fruit was picked from. So these things are already beginning to be applied by, in the New Zealand produce industry horticulture in particular. So we do have these capacities and we have not really had an opportunity though to bring those to China and actually to apply them. I'm not quite sure of the reason why. I think for a lot of those businesses, they have good clients in China, They'd rather, sorry, in New Zealand, they'd rather be dealing directly with the um, producer in New Zealand and make their money that way and enjoy the growth that clearly is coming and will continue to come. To, to convince those companies to go to China and take on the demanding IP environment of China is a big step. One of the impediments though that most companies believe means it's not worth taking that step is they don't believe they can protect their IP in China. This kind of IP can be protected in China. When it comes to technology, China has so much technology to protect for itself that it's become very good at 
meeting the demands of foreign companies in IP protection cases. So I'm being very specific here around high technology and traceability and provenance. Doesn't mean that across the board that IP is, is necessarily as safe as it is becoming in the tech sector, but it is something we need to do. Again, it needs to be the private sector, a private sector company where the owners of the business have a real motive to set up in China and to get the, the gains of getting market share and the kind of profits that can come. Those are the drivers we need. I think it has to go out of the state sector. Now, MPI is a very good facilitator and a very good force for New Zealand and China. We have to recall, it's the other ministry that's put the time in to sending um, their um, future workers who are going to go to China, future managers, to Taiwan for um, language training. And a number of MPI people alongside of NZTE and MFAT are being trained in Chinese language at the moment. So they're increasingly a canon of Mandarin speaking professionals. But it must be the private sector to deal with the ruthless um, free market that China is. And it is an area that there is a lot of potential. Trouble is still most of the companies are very small and overcoming that is quite a challenge. One of the challenges is that these owners of small companies, I know this thing myself and I know you've faced this, someone wants to come to help you grow, but you have to give up equity. You've got to give up ownership. You must go into collaboration with those that are putting in the money. And for a lot of New Zealand company owners, particularly of those that have, have um, at great, great effort and great cost, developed their own ideas and technology, surrendering that ownership is a very difficult thing. And it's a very big part of New Zealand culture and business is to hang on to the business that you've created. So you're asking a cultural change here, but it's a change that we're going to have to make. Yes. And, and just to reiterate, yeah, I don't think we're pushing for the sale, wholesale sale of New Zealand companies. It's about bringing in partners that may take a minority shareholding uh, in the business to have a vested interest. Uh, because as we know, a lot of local Chinese partners are very wary of pushing a brand uh, and then seeing it a year or two year later get taken on by one of the competitors uh, after all the hard work that they put in. Um, so I know that is a big driver uh, for getting equity in a brand uh, that they put the effort for. David, COVID's changed everything. We know that. We won't go into that. Um, what we do know is that China's been very quick to get back in the front foot. People are out there. They're buying. They're spending. They're um, back on the streets. And I speak to my friends up in Beijing, and they're back to traffic jams and pollution and all the, the things that go with that economic prosperity of those big cities. What I would like to see, though, is a talk, and we can kick it off here. I know it's happening in other circles. What is the new New Zealand story? Because everything's changed. And what was working pre-COVID needs to be reflected on. And we just can't assume that we go back to business as usual and, and start flogging the same goods the same way that we have for the last 20, 30 years, you know, very successfully. Where are those points that we should be looking at? And who are the players that can really take a leading role here? I think we first, in, in some quarters, have to overcome our national hubris, which is we're the cleanest, greenest country in the world. We have the most wonderfully sustainable products. We have the best milk, we have the best meat, the best kiwi fruit. Um, we've got to overcome that, that almost that national boast that goes alongside our products and have a bit more humility because the, re the reality of our environment is New Zealand is not that clean and not that green. There are many issues in the supply chains that we are extending now into China related to our food and our beverage, related to even our health products. 
So we need to look at that. Um, if I think of the Manuka honey sector, so many players entered the market in China, making all sorts of claims, very confusing claims and sometimes contradictory claims within the sector that the star of Manuka honey has waned in China. Um, it's very hard now for a Chinese distributor to take seriously someone who wants to come with a new Manuka honey brand, even if they have reasonable volume behind it. It's been somewhat bastardized um, because of a very greedy approach and a rather speculative and reckless approach on behalf of some honey companies. So that's just one example. So I think that we have to be very clear that we present an honest face to China. Yes, in many ways, what we grow here, the environment in which it is grown, does have an edge globally. There's no question about that. Let's talk about that. But let's talk about our own struggles with environmental despoilation, our own problems with pollution in water, particularly. Um, the dairy sector is a, a, a very good area to start. And talk about what we're doing to overcome our flaws and where pollution is an issue for us. And sh in showing that, we can show an honesty to the Chinese consumer. I say that because of my memory of the um, C. botulinum scare, when Fonterra thought it had contaminants in some whey powder that it thought was on its way to China. The product was not contaminated and it was not on its way to China, but they overdid the, um, the governance and they, in the end, bungled the communications. In the Chinese um, social media, we were at that stage advising Fonterra, we were tracking what was being said about this problem. And if you remember, um, people were, products were blocked from New Zealand and anywhere where products were already in the country were being stockpiled and held because the prices were going up. It caused a huge distortion in the ingredient supply chain into China. But at the end, while some households would not have used infant formula from New Zealand ever after that, many looked at it and said, well, and I think about 50% of the tracking of, of commentary, and not just by us, but by other organizations, was look at this country. It has gone too far on food safety. Therefore, it's thinking of recalling a, a, a product batch that's been sold to China. So I think in our story, let's be real about it and talk about what we're doing to fight the ordinary human impediments that get in, get in the way of sustaining this 100% pure claim. So I think that kind of honesty, that kind of um, relationship with China would be, I think, a very good one. And perhaps do more in our own industries, what, whatever the sector is, in working in the Chinese sector as well. So if we're involved in the meat sector, find places where we can help Chinese processing to have more integrity by sharing some of the technology and know-how that New Zealand has and being more corporate citizens in these key sectors that New Zealand depends upon in terms of its exports to China. Communications, it often is, uh, you know, where we trip ourselves up after a lot of good work. And we actually saw it again last week. We had Winston Peters come out and make some pretty brash statements uh, in regards to uh, the China-Taiwanese position and requiring the Prime Minister to come follow up and, and reaffirm New Zealand's one China policy uh, on the back of that. We're also seeing in Australia right now, you know, just how damaging diplomatic rails that China can be in regards to their trade. And not just in the short term, you know, this, this stuff does carry a shadow uh, and, and, and the Chinese are not quick to forget um, who's got their corner, or at, least, at least who has given them a fair platform to discuss the issues. How can we learn from 
what happened with last week with Minister Peters and Australia's situation currently in terms of navigating, which will obviously be some pretty turbulent times for the next six, 12 months as the world works through uh, the causes of COVID and uh, our ongoing relationship with China? Yeah, it's a very, it's the crucial question. Um, we cannot go on as we have, assuming that China will forgive our um, feints, our leaning towards an American position. Because however you try and cast this, the investigation by the WHO was basically called for by the United States because they were basically saying that China had, in effect, weaponized by accident or by design um, a virus that came out of the lab in Wuhan, and therefore America's suffering under COVID-19 was all China's fault. Um, it's also part of America's wish to contain China. They see China as a rising power, and because the American empire is declining, they lay the blame at China's door. The American empire is declining because of the internal issues within the United States. That's the cause of the diminution of America, not China's rise, or not its other competitors globally, and it includes Russia to some extent in this. The views that this is the case are absurd. I mean, we know that 60% of um, exports into the US out of, out of China are by American-owned companies. The position is the most extraordinary act of economic self-harm almost in history. So New Zealand has to be a lot quicker and a lot smarter than it has been. We can't afford to have a coalition partner canvassing on their own ideas, trying to get the racist vote in New Zealand, that people that fear China, people that are anti-China, by saying that um, China is bad, China needs to be investigated. We need to investigate coronavirus um, and COVID-19 globally. We need to work with China and look at the um, causes within China to understand how this emerged. I think there's already very strong science for the fact that this has come from bats. It possibly came from somewhere so more southerly than Wuhan, but it is the interaction with these wild and rare animals and human beings. Um, it brings into question, not just issues about China, but the destruction of natural habitats right throughout the world, and particularly in Asia, where Logging and forestry is meaning that these animals that normally don't come in direct contact with humans are doing so more, more often. But in the same week, for us to talk about sponsoring um, observer status for Taiwan and the WHO and joining this call for an investigation is very, very poor diplomacy. We can still be participating in conversations with WHO and saying that we want there to be an investigation, that's fine. But to be announcing this as a start, stance for New Zealand is putting us into a very bad position. We are see, seen by China rightly in these things as leaning towards the American position. And does this country want to ally itself with the um, administration of Donald Trump and all the um, insanity that's been flowing out of Washington? I don't think so. Um, the crisis of COVID-19 in America is that it doesn't have a public health system. The crisis is also that it is a country that demeans science. It's a country that has a government, sorry, that demeans science. And its government also demeans the concept of government and the way that government can play a role in people's lives as it played in New Zealand. So I think we have to really see that we are a very different country than these Anglo-Saxon Celtic nations that we have sentimental attachment to. 
we're not like Britain. We're not like the United States. We're also not like Australia. Australia is coming to the point in a long chain of positions against China on behalf of the US as an ally of the United States. We are not an ally of the United States. We are a non-allied country. So we need to wake up to that and position ourselves, not just in respect of China, but the whole of Asia is watching us on these, these positions. And they have their own issues with China, many of them on territory, but they see the way we behave as a Western country. And I think we need to remember that we've had 40 years of getting it by and large right in both labor and national administration. So I think we need to fine tune things. The prime minister perhaps can speak in counterpoint to the way that her coalition partner is sometimes expressing things. So China realizes that we are not just sucking up to Beijing, but we're our own country. We make our own decisions and we aren't bullied by Canberra or by Washington or for that matter, London. At the moment, it's a bit of a blur and it's not looking good for New Zealand business in China. In regards to this rising confrontation between the US and China, I think it's fair to say that also China at times doesn't do itself any favours in terms of its diplomatic approach um, and the way that it handles some of these crises. And I've you know, lived through, what, 20 plus years in Beijing. I've uh, went through SARS. Uh, I lost a business during SARS. I founded a business during SARS. On a personal level, I feel quite disgruntled that China didn't learn from the SARS epidemic. And in regards to civic cats and the same issue of wildlife getting in touch with, with livestock uh, or with the uh, food chain in these wet markets, surely China has to take some sense of ownership to the fact that it didn't learn from the SARS epidemic. And this has now just repeated itself in a much larger and wider scale. I think China needs to look at what it didn't learn from SARS. I agree with you. But also let's look at what China did learn from SARS in terms of the way it handled this coronavirus. After the initial um, cover-up in Wuhan of about it's six to 12 days, um, then you have the central government stepping in. Um, and let's remember that H1N1, swine disease, swine flu, that came out of um, the United States and Mexico. It took them six months to acknowledge that it was actually a very dangerous virus. 500,000 people died globally from H1N1. Now, America's never claimed that it was the source of that particular virus. So I think we have to be careful about saying that one country is, or another is responsible for what's now spreading around the world in, in absolute terms. Yes, China was the source of this coronavirus, and it is now spreading around the world, and it looks like it'll be a part of our, um, the canon of flus that we have to deal with for many, many, many generations to come. But beating up on China for failing to govern this doesn't help, uh, help us solve the problem. We need, we need to acknowledge and be honest and not suck up to China on the issue, but work with China on trying to control or, or learn better how to control what's currently out there with COVID-19. And yes, work towards in China and throughout Asia um, and any other countries where you have um, a large population of poorer people living very close to their own livestock, often close to um, wild habitats. It's the same as, as, as in India, South America. All these countries have these potential problems. And where possible, the more developed countries have to be able to work with these countries in a very positive and affirming way. Just playing the blame game 
doesn't help. I don't think China for any moment is not aware of the fact that bats in its wet markets are the cause of this. And I'm sure that a great deal is being done in respect of wet markets as a result. They have suffered too. So I think the real issue we have to deal with is more the way China often responds to these charges and its diplomatic dialogue. There's too much that's reactionary and acerbic when it comes from some of the positions in foreign affairs for China around the world. It reacts in very strong language. Um, it tries to um, talk in terms of wanting to control the narrative about itself in countries that have free press like New Zealand. That's a very futile thing for China to do. And I would hope that from this, it's seeing that it gains no friends and certainly doesn't help the friends it has in the manner in which sometimes it engages diplomatically. So I think there are many parts of the world where China's dropped the ball on this. And if we go back in time, there are other instances where China's done very well in this area, but it needs to up its game going forward, or it will find itself being cut off from people, from countries that can help it. No, it's an interesting one, David, and it's something which, uh, you know, having spent such a big part of our lives in China, uh, we want to see China, you know, do well, like any country, and, and, and its people uh, do well and have a prosperous and, and secure uh, livelihoods. One thing that I've noticed and have felt over the years, whilst a lot of these crises start in the, uh, the provinces far from Beijing, and I generally believe Beijing is, is very, very quick to get on top of these issues, uh, especially in recent years in regards to previous times. But one thing I think we can't forget is that the reason we have this culture in the provinces of willing to uh, suppress information and hide the information from central government is because there is a state of fear through the country with a very centralized authoritarian regime. And with the autocrat that Xi Jinping has clearly become, um, that does create a situation where people will, in the provinces, hide the truth for their own well-being. So the central government still plays a very big role as part of the problem with the provinces hiding the information. It's true that there is a price to um, being a whistleblower or coming up with problems in your own jurisdiction in China. But if we go back before Xi's um, tenure as president began, things were a lot worse because there was so little discipline from the center. And so we had a corruption issue in China that if there'd not been the anti-corruption campaign that is still ongoing, that's now what seven years into its um, um, life, then China would have begun to actually fragment. So China needs at this stage to have a very strong disciplinary, cent cent centrally run, very disciplined governance across such things as food safety, compliance on the environment. This has to be very tough. And in a situation like that, people will be afraid to often come up with what's happening. But we are living in a much better environment in China overall because of the disciplines that have come out of the central system that Xi Jinping runs. So I would say that in terms of com uh, compliance to the, with the law, um, general criminality and fraud, these instances are far less. We deal a lot with stressed assets and we're finding the functioning of the courts and the ability for companies to get away with the kind of fraud that they were getting away with previously is far less. So I think we're going through a period of great discipline in China. And yes, there are some fallout from that. 
One of them is fear of the regime. I think we will pass through this phase. Then the government has to have the courage to go to the next phase, which is real transparency, not, de not demanded by the center and complied with out of fear of ramifications, but a culture of transparency. And for China to achieve the great potential as a nation that it can achieve, it very much needs to bring in a more flexible and a more open internal system of media, of social dialogue, and of transparency. Ultimately, it needs to have an independent legal system. Now, I know that won't come soon, but an increasingly independent legal system is going to give greater comfort to those who are going to bring problems to the center. Otherwise, China will reach a certain level of development and it will ossify. It'll be a strong and powerful economy, but it will begin to lose its um, strength in the world because it will need to match the hard power, hard economic power it can now project with the soft power that comes from within a society. And a government actually doesn't create soft power. It happens naturally. I mean, America's great soft power, which now exists globally, has come spontaneously from within its society. It comes out in its music. It comes out in its film culture. It comes out actually in its media culture. These things are ha happen only when a government lets go. So one of the great challenges of China is not to go on disciplining the country in the way it is. It can do that, and it will be able to do that very well. It's at the point when it has to start letting go. And that'll be a huge challenge for this administration. It may be beyond Xi Jinping's reign, not because he'll stop it, but it will take more time for China to be ready for it. David, I think it's important for listeners who, you know, and we've had some great feedback. We get people, black currant growers down in Ashburton. We've had uh, apple growers in Hawke's Bay, farmers from the Conway Flat, all tuning in and giving us feedback about, you know, just enjoying understanding what is happening uh, in market. But also, I think it's important that we do have a discussion around the geopolitics of China, because at the end of the day, that is what affects our trade. And we can't decouple the two between politics and trade when it comes to China. And I think it's very important that the, the New Zealand base, the people who are relying on this relationship, who are predominantly now our primary sector, need to be educated about the dynamics of that relationship and the importance of our politicians engaging in that in a constructive way which is going to affect their livelihoods and the, and the livelihoods of their families. And so I think we can't underestimate the importance of geopolitics when it comes to New Zealand's trade with China. Hence, while I'm willing to diverge a bit into this macro kind of uh, 30,000 foot discussion, but it will have a huge impact on whether or not we can get next year's beef into market at what, at what rate and under what circumstance. So David, Really great for you to coming on today. Um, we could talk for hours. We do talk for hours. Um, it's nice to have it on record. And uh, I really look forward to revisiting this conversation in a few months' time. Um, and best of luck with your efforts back up there. I'm sure you're heading back up to China at some point when the, when the coast is clear. But I look forward to catching up again in Beijing very soon. Thanks very much, Jay. Great to talk to you. Thanks for tuning in for another edition of Asia Hustle. Uh, you can follow us on social media at LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. Please leave some messages, leave some comments, like us, forward us, share us, and you can check out all of our previous shows at asiahustle.com. We've got two more episodes coming up. Until next week, take care, stay well. We'll see you again soon. <laughs>